0: Hi, I'm Blaze Brosnan, and I'm your host for this episode of MIR Meets. Today, I'll be speaking with Catherine D., also known as Default Friend. Catherine D. is a blogger best known for her writing on internet culture, as well as originally on dating in the digital age. Today, we'll be discussing how uh, the digital age has impacted our experience of the human condition, uh, the fascinating and sometimes deeply disturbing world of internet subcultures, as well as dating trends in the 21st century. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. So I first want to discuss your early work on dating in the 21st century. Your first big break, so to speak, was your piece, um, The Coming Age of Sex Negativity, I think, in which you argued that after a long period of sexual hedonism, openness to alternative forms of sexual expression, and receding taboos on obscenity in elite circles, a backlash was due. What informed your argument?
1: So uh, that that's a, that's a really funny post that went, uh, it went so viral because Ra- Ross, uh, doubt that at the New York Times yeah. kept linking it and his PC, he linked it a few times. Um, it wasn't like if you read it, it's like very kind of messy and it's like they're bullet points and it's kind of all all over the place. Um, but that was uh, that that, that was like me sort of pattern matching things I was seeing on TikTok and and Twitter, and it wasn't like informed by uh, anything, anything meaningful, right? It was it was sort of just like, oh, I got this vibe. Um, and I, I might have willed willed it into happening a little bit. I mean, it's, it's not widely accepted, it seems, but it does seem like there is an increased skepticism of the anything-goes behavior of my generation.
0: I guess the only example I can find of just in kind of elite, you know, urban culture of a kind of more reactionary, you know, sexual conservatism taking hold is like the whole Dime Square thing, but that's kind of largely hipsters just appropriating, you know, uh, like quote trad culture, you know, traditionalist culture.
1: Yeah, that's. Uh, kind of, I you know. mean, it 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 and it, there's, so there's a few things. Like I I saw like an ID article that was like something about new or like Vice is like one of these sort of usually leans more progressive, um, type outlets and. Um, like speculating, like, oh, like, monogamy is is, is coming back as being in because poly, polyamory sort of exhausted itself. And a big, so a big part of this, this blog post um, was one, you know, like internet trends, but two, how we talk about these things. So it's really hard. It's, you know, especially hard for me personally, right, to measure how behavior on the ground has changed. I don't have those resources. And, you know, I, I wouldn't, and I, I just, I just don't, I just don't really know about how people are behaving on the ground. But the way we talk about things has definitely shifted. Um, so it's, a, it's a little bit about the media conversation too, right? And a little bit about how it's expressed online. And now it depends on what you think is significant. I do think that there is maybe like less of that sort of like hot mess type of openness that was like really uh, popular among millennials um but then there's also this question of like do we take someone like Nick Fuentes seriously and his following seriously right like there's tons of young men who are not maybe they're not trad and sort of the you know like classical like I- idea of the word but they they're definitely leaning more towards celibacy they there's sort of a weird relationship with being an incel in and it's in sort of a different way like they're not you know they're not incels in the sense that um, so they're not they're not um, necessarily like um, part of the incel the popular idea of the incelosphere but they're abstaining from sex and so it, it you know it depends on who you include and like what constitutes a trend but i do think there's been a shift online in terms of like what's in vogue like yes you know is is the kind of like millennial like every other tweets about someone you've sucked with thing, is that, you know, is that uh, still happening? Yes, but there seems to be a little bit of a backlash to it. And it's it's kind of like a trivial note almost because it's about like how we talk about things.
0: The one question I have is that, I mean, another question is how do we disentangle the different forms that sex negativity might take? So, I mean, I openly reactionary sexual conservatism, you know, still seems pretty rare, you know, in elite media sectors. But I think, I mean, in part due to increased concern over sexual harassment, you know, open sexual overtures or romantic overtures in the workplace are much rarer than they have been in the past. I saw a Yahoo News article, I think, in the, based on UK data, that only 10% of couples have met at work uh, in the past, say, 10 years, which is a, you know, historic low. Um, yeah, from my own experience, you know, for men, college-age men, chauvinistic or sexualizing talk about women you know she's an eight she's a nine she's a ten seems much rarer than in previous generations guys are really afraid to talk about that stuff for fear of coming off as misogynistic so it seems like there's a larger atmosphere of you know sex negativity but that expresses itself also through liberal mores
1: yeah i think i think that's true too um and you know, part. So the thing that I was always really interested in is like, what are the archetypes that we um, that become sort of like zeitgeisty? So like less like who is the everyman, but like who who are the images of a generation that that persist? Like for millennials, it's like this girl boss idea, you know, like a, a promiscuous girl boss with many sexual partners. But that that doesn't really describe that many people. But that's sort of an image. That exists right but i think your point i mean certainly with like me too right that that is definitely like an expression not sex negativity per se but like there's sort of the i think we underestimate sort of the decadence of especially like the early 2000s that we had with sexuality and the lack of boundaries and i think the lack of respect we showed people who were you know victims of sexual assault And that's that's part of it, too. It's like kind of this reaction to this vulgar wave that was very, very prevalent uh, just in the decade preceding.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. And that that kind of puts it into context, um, because, you know, there might be a right wing backlash that's more fringy than there's a liberal backlash with Me Too. And, you know, stuff like I think you wrote about Judd Apatow movies, which kind of extol, you know, young men sowing their wild oats. Those are less in vogue now. And probably even just Judd Apatow would, you know, uh, uh, would openly regret a lot of the content in those movies. So Yeah, it's uh,
1: it's, it's interesting. Like the the sophomoric male of the Judd Apatow movie yeah. and the hot mess female of like an Amy Schumer joke, right? Or Sarah Silverman. Both of those are I've now... Right.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, and so I want to move on after this kind of talk about your really early work, Um I want to move on to your more recent work on internet culture. So first, can you explain what made you interested in becoming a historian of internet culture?
1: Well, histori- historian's a sort of a loaded word. Um, people have been, like, clowning on me for, uh, for the use of that word recently, which I kind of understand, um, but people always ask me for a title, and I'll often get told that, like, like blogger doesn't pass uh, all the time. And so, you know, I'm part of, like, a number of, like, associations that, like, explicitly have internet history in the name. And a lot of what I do is looking at, like, archives of posts and things um, and then trying to, like, contextualize them. Um, and, you know, that's that's why I use that word. But I, I don't know if, like, I, you know, I don't have a, I, I, I didn't go to grad school or anything. Um, and I wouldn't say, like, all my, like, there are real internet historians, Right. And I wouldn't say, like, all my methods are, are uh, may, you know, maybe as um, robust as theirs, right? Uh, but it, I, do, I do try, I, I do focus less on what's happening right now online. And I think more about what, what's happened in previous, uh, previous decades.
0: I guess the next most obvious question is, uh, what do you, you know, first, I mean, I'll, I'll ask these kind of a double-barreled question. So do you think the world of the, of the internet of internet history is understudied and then what do you think more academic experts on digital media who often not participant observers like yourself might get wrong
1: I don't think it's understudied I think people don't know how much work is actually being done like internet studies right is a very or like cyber culture that's a really big field and there's a lot of people working on it and they come from different angles some people are go through it you know sociological lens some people are more of like a, a history of technology. I mean, there's, there's so many different ways to cut it. Um, that's kind of like a problem in the field. Like, wh- you know, what is it? What what field does it belong to? What discipline does it belong to? Um, so I, I, you know, I think I'm one of i I think I'm one of the few people who sort of is both terminally online and Um, you know, if not working in this field as an academic, I'm definitely not working in this field as an academic, but I do read a lot of like papers and I try to keep up with what's going on. And I also try to like give, you know, as much as is relevant, like give credit where credit is due, because there's so much great work being done that people just because the people who are doing it, they're neither internet personalities nor journalists. It gets sort of hidden away in academia. And I think it's a real shame. Um, I think I, I, I think there's any anyone who's trying to like construct a narrative or tell a story in this way um, is seen as like pretty goofy among the like, terminally online, right? And there's something about that that like automatically makes you an outsider. And then, the, but then it's a double edged sword because then if you're a non academic within academia, that's kind of or you know trying to be in dialogue with academia, you have your own shortcomings there too, right? So. Um, some I mean some scholars are better than others. there's a lot of people who um, I think their work is great and I'm you know I, I I wish I was as well resourced as them and i I, I cite them all the time and um, I think they're like you know they might be studying for example like in cells or fem cells or something, but their insights are evergreen for many different subcultures and then there's some people who I think that, um, it's a shame that it's their life's work, right? And they there's this level of separation, out of touchness. But I, but that's true of any any field, right? There's you know anthropologists who uh, might be very you know uh, academically acclaimed, but the cultures that they write about might be might not recognize themselves in the work. So it just it's it's just like anything else.
0: Yeah, I and mean, so it sounds like you're you know you struggle a bit being in between. Um, you know, uh, trying to analyze the internet as a participant observer and trying to build a more, build more of a discourse with academia. Um, and maybe that's the best of both worlds in certain ways, because I know, uh, I mean, I know firsthand I go to a university, I interact with academics. There's probably a greater degree of, you know, out of touchness in terms of what's, go- with what's going on in you know, popular culture or even what's going on, like on the mainstream, right. You know, why say, uh, you know, why the right, the online right, you know, behaves in certain ways or makes certain kinds of arguments. And academic types, they might often take a pretty objectifying lens of that and say, you know, well, this is because of disinformation, you know, this is white supremacy. Whereas people, journalists who are more hooked into the discourse are often able to take maybe more of a, uh, um, you know, impartial perspective. And I feel that's one thing with you that's beneficial when you're, you know, uh, writing on incels, um, You know, or even dissident right online culture, that you take a fairly neutral view.
1: Well, part of you know, and part of this is, and I, you know, so there are certain subcultures that like I clash heads with. Like they don't, they don't want to be perceived, and they certainly don't want to be perceived by me, right? And my argument sometimes is, you know, you could, you're going to be if once you reach critical mass. Like I completely understand if it's like a private. A uh, Facebook group or something with like forty nine people, who are maybe like emblematic of a certain trend, but what they're doing is fundamentally private. It's none of it's none of my business, right? Or if it's a small account and I'm you know I'm naming them in an article, that I I I don't do that, right? Because that's that is a tr- that is an invasion of privacy. Um, but uh, these other people who and or groups of people where they are they they are relevant um, and they are popular. And uh, they don't like that I mention them, even when they could be trending on Twitter or something. And I'll just say like, look, you you could, uh, you know, I'm not really gonna make a dent, but it's like, would you rather have me talk about you and and try to be, you know, try to be charitable where I can? Or would you rather have someone um, who has an agenda and regardless of what you're up to, needs to say that you are spreading disinformation or that you're dangerous? And, you know, I feel like obviously their answer is we want to speak for ourselves, fuck both of you. But, um, you know, it's that's that's uh, not I'm pretty independent. So, like, I don't I don't have to I, I, I do I can't afford to be to be charitable. And the other the other thing with this is um, I think journalists, there are journalists with agendas. There's also journalists where I feel bad for them because it's like they have a they have a job. Right. So they have to they, they have an editor who they're reporting to, and they have to produce a certain number of articles. To get to know any subculture, you need to be immersed in it for a very long time. Um, and they don't have the, the, t- the time or the tools to, like, lurk in the way. Like all yeah. These communities that I'm active members in, you know, maybe under an alt account or something, and they don't know it's, it's me or maybe I'm an active member of the community as me. And it's not just to, it's not just as, you know, observing so I can I can learn about the world. And I get stuff wrong and I get stuff wrong because it's just like, there's no, there's no central body, right? Just, it just, the, every it, things are different and there's conflicting narratives.
0: Yeah. I think one of, I mean, I think one example of what you're talking about where a you know, a journalist, uh, you know, attempts very quickly to kind of, uh, you know, un, uh, you know, discover and, uh, a certain subculture and then fails at it, but due to journalistic pressure has to go forward and then creates a kind of a giant kerfuffle was the whole um, uh, Slate Star Codex case uh, back in 2020 you know this journalist' um, a New York Times tech reporter, you probably know his name um, you know doc Scott Alexander basically uh, yeah you know, under his real name um, because the New York Times allegedly you know prohibits writing about people under anonymous names and uh, you know eventually wrote a the article was delayed because you know Scott took his blog offline when the article came out it was very negative and it was about you know Scott's ties to you know race realism and NRX and the rationalist movement in general, and there was very little attempt to apply a neutralized rationalism or the many positive aspects of it. You know, uh, um, you know, amazing in epistemology and so on. So I think that's what you know subcultures fear from journalists. But if you have someone who's an independent observer and is online themselves, that remedies some of that.
1: It's also and there's also just an anti. Uh, journalist stance in general and I think there's something invasive I mean people don't like especially in the in these worlds don't like someone who they perceive as like trying to to be an internet personality is one thing but to try to be to try to move through institutions is almost a betrayal of the ethos regardless of what subculture you're in and partially for the reason you you list like there's this you know it's, it's this us versus them, right? Like, is this person going to dox us? But then there's also an element of it where, and you see this talk about more with like like left-wing subcultures or like Tumblr, um, only I can tell my own story. But this is true of, is, you know, and I don't know if it's unique to the digital age or if it's unique to any any subculture, but they don't want to be talked about in a way where they don't have complete authority over what's being said. Right? Like the like one thing with you mentioned the dissident right, the dissident right will get very upset, right if they don't get credit where they believe credit is due. and it often is, right? Um, and they you know if let's say unheard or tablet or something publishes an article by a journalist um, about, let's say for example, Bronze Age pervert, Bronze Age pervert will turn around and say, why why publish, you know, uh, adam smith just making up a name here not a real person um about this topic and not myself or raw egg nationalist or zero hp lovecraft and then the publication right will turn around and say you guys are internet anons we're not going to publish." and sometimes sometimes they break that rule and they do publish them and they actually they, it actually has sort of moved the discourse forward like there are publications who will publish anons be it from the dissident, right or otherwise But what's interesting about that conflict is like, they want credit, which is reasonable, but they also don't want anyone else to speak for them. And they don't want to be talked about as an, they certainly don't want to be talked about as an internet or digitally native phenomenon. They want, they, they want to be on their own terms. I think that's in some sense fair, but um, they shut down any criticism too, and that's sort of the dark side of that. I dema- a demand that I think at a certain point of popularity makes a lot of sense and is really reasonable. But then on the other hand, it's like, well, you need an outsider's perspective at some point. can't—you can't always be the one who's sh- who's breaking your own story, right? Like Democrats need to write about Republicans, Republicans need to write about Democrats, and any iteration of of you know X group versus Y group. That kind of helps us segue to kind of our next point, which is,
0: you know, one of your kind of more recent uh, arguments is that the Internet really is a means for humans to curate um, their own sense of reality and their own sense of community. And so you posted a pretty prescient essay by John Perry Barlow from 1993 on the rise of the Internet and these kind of subcultures you're talking about as an alternative form of human community, essentially arguing that while the Internet has great potential that means to bring people together on the basis of shared interest. There's nevertheless a you know a certain vitality about real-world communities um, that is missing in the cybersphere. And Perry Barlow goes on to argue that, you know, as real-world communities themselves are being decimated, um, you know, uh and eroding, a sense of social solidarity is eroding, what Durkheim called honor me, cyberspace, imperfect as it is, represents the future. And so these kinds of online subcultures that are talking about, that are insular, you know, refuse discussion from the outside, increasingly have a real-world impact and begin to shape social reality in the real world. We start with Trump, right? I mean, you know, his uh, election campaign in 20- 2016 was heavily online, and, you know, he was on Twitter and very focused on online memes. Mm-hmm. And so, I guess, uh, how do you think, uh, you know, Barlow's predictions about the rise of subculture and so on have worn out? And can we create a kind of intimacy in the cyberspace, despite all that, uh, despite the sense of separation uh, between people that creates the insularity of subcultures, can we create a kind of intimacy that's lacking in the real world?
1: Um, Yeah, I think we, so I think we can. Um, So Humdog, um, who've also written about a lot, she she was um, like an early internet, you know, culture critic, really. But she was also she's also another person who's speaking from within, right? Um, she had very similar criticisms, and you know a lot of what it comes down to is is two things: like the social politics of these of these platforms, um, and then the incentives of the platforms themselves, right? They need people. It's it's a commercialized space, right? And what you need you need reciprocity, so you need people to be having conversations. And how do you inspire that? Well you know, status, um, these days you can, there's real world social capital and, and money and all of that impacts how intimate you can be. Um, and which is another reason why a lot of subcultures, even if they break their own rule for certain people are skeptical of people like me who are like, I use my real face. I'm going on Tucker Carlson. It's like, there's something that's like, well, why are you here? Right. <laughs> are you, are you sincere? Like, What are you doing right um because that's a threat to this intimacy but um i do think there's a way there's the way around that is um you know especially since these arguments against like commercialization or commodification have been around since the early 90s um i actually think like technological advances even though in some ways it makes us more atomized more isolated it does help break down some of those barriers to intimacy like one thing I've argued a lot is that you could have a, a robust romantic relationship with someone completely mediated by a screen. That's partially because of like FaceTime and Zoom and you never, you, you don't have to log on or off. You're always online. Right. So to answer your question, like, yes, you can have intimacy within communities and certainly person to person, but then the, the there's a huge tax of how much time you need to sink in. And at a certain point, like, why not just, bring that into the real world like what it, it depends like what is stopping you yeah and sometimes a- there's valid answers
0: and my next question it kind of follows up on that point which is um so obviously you know the internet uh, internet communities uh you know the place a portion of real world intimacy that's lost so one you and and also um you know shapes our conception of social reality as well and so on that topic you know you have an article in tablet which i think um kind of speaks to the point about how, uh, how the digital sphere uh, kind of reshapes our social na- landscapes, called Among the Spiritual Psychotics, I think, where you argue that the digital sphere has uh, twisted our sense of, reality, of, of our own reality by allowing us the ability to curate our identity online. And so, you know, one fact of these internet communities is obviously people have avatars, people can, uh, in extreme cases, come up with a completely different identity than who they actually are. Um, You know, think of like not an education, employment or training person, you know, cosplaying as a historian of World War II on a forum, let's say. Um, But also even in a limited sense on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok, we can choose to create idealized aspects of ourselves to show the world. And so you make a fascinating link between 21st century wellness movements, um, such as something called the online manifestation movement, which I was not familiar with. It's kind of a power of positive thinking thing that helps uh, emphasize just tuning out negative aspects of reality and just thinking about the positive things. And people's increased ability to create, uh, curate their own identity online. So can you elaborate on your view that digital culture and, you know, digital forms of, you know, community that allow people to, uh, uh, you know, uh, cut out the non-ideal aspects of
1: life, that
0: how that might be changing how people perceive their own reality in the real world?
1: Yeah. Um, one, I think it's really, and this is a, you know an argument I make a lot, and I think I make it in this piece. I think because, so fundamentally the internet is a, a space of play, right? So when you are playing as um, you know, a villain in like a Barbie game as a five-year-old, right? Like you're, you're obviously not like really a villain, right? It, but you're exploring something that you're interested in and something that's, that's true to you right even though that's not who you are and i think all we forget that that's what the internet allows us to do so it's changed the role of lying right like what we would naturally say like this is a lie it's actually not a lie it's a different way of communicating um and it's it's something really hard to wrap your mind around but if you're online enough you start to you start to see that right
0: one thing i thought of actually just uh to- you know, uh, to kind of jump in, is that there's an interesting link between your argument about how the internet shifts, you know, and in some sense, re-spiritualizes our conception of reality. And the observation made by sociologists of religion, uh, like Peter Berger, I think, um, that humans always find avenues to curate and reshape their own conception of reality. A more traditional way we did this was through religion, through religious ritual, you know, seeking enchantment through mysticism. Um, you know, there's the view proposed by Max Weber that modernity and industrialization eroded our ability to escape from depressing realities through religious faith, imposing an iron cage of uh, um, of rationality. And so my, my question is, do you think that Internet life, with its boundless possibilities to escape into new realities and build new communities, and again, um, you know, kind of, as you said, allow us to lie in a certain way about ourselves in ways that wasn't permitted before kind of ordinary 20th century modernity um do you think the internet life could be filling a void left by the decline of religion in that sense as, as a form of social organization and a form of uh, accessing new realities
1: if there's a void necessarily um, tara isabella burton had recently published a very interesting book called self-made about all the different ways people construct their own identities Um, instead of the internet re-enchanting things, I think maybe it gave more people access to these ideas, right, Um, or maybe like broadened them a little bit. But I think these ideas have have never really gone away. They've always reinvented themselves and they've always come up in new ways. Um, They've just, they've been, the possibilities around them have just exploded, I think. Uh, So it's, it's like, it's bigger.
0: And that's an interesting view because, I mean, I think uh, I think humans have always found ways to, you know, reinvent their own reality to tell to present versions of themselves uh, that were not necessarily, you know, authentic, authentic, so to speak, you know, whether through art, you know, theater or through, you know, uh, the enchantment of religious life. And the Internet is only the latest avenue for us to do that. And so that was just kind of a mm. thing I just thought I had reading your article. Um,
1: I think you're, you're' I think it's a good connection to make. I mean I think what's really different about the internet is like you're able to do it in such an extreme way that the tension is really like between how you conceive of yourself and how other people perceive you. Um, and it's it sometimes it happens online, but then sometimes it it's it's in the real world and I think like or in the physical world rather um, and this you know like a mundane example of this and, and one that's not like culturally culturally loaded is like as someone who uses a lot of filters and like is expressing a true part of themselves, like an emotional truth through those filters, but steps out um, into the physical world and looks very different and then, and doesn't get to experience the way they're treated online, you know, in the same way in the physical world. Cause they don't look the same.
0: Yeah. That's very interesting. A lot of this stuff is alien to me in a certain sense because I'm, I'm not heavily online in the sense of, you know, being, I'm on Twitter, you know, I'm on politics, Twitter, and so on. There's kind of a lurping there that does happen. But in terms of, you know, like, you know, beauty or or TikTok, you know, obviously as a guy, it's kind of alien, but it's very interesting to hear about. So, yeah, we've established that, you know, internet communities create a tremendous opportunity for people to recreate themselves and curate uh, kind of ideal conceptions of selves that may not be there in reality. But I now want to shift, I guess, to the darker side of internet life. So just as the Internet's sphere carries, you know, an emancipatory potential for people to liberate themselves from the confines of ordinary reality and reinvent themselves, I think it also has the potential to allow people to lose touch with reality and ordinary moral rules and find online communities with similar people who are very far removed from conventional moral life. And in your piece, Mass Shootings in the World of Liberals Are Made, you argue that a factor behind the actions of many mass shooters, uh, such as Adam Lanza, is there emerging in unusual online subcultures that either promote violence or express disdain for human life? I think antinatalism is one. Can you explain that argument uh, to your listeners? Yeah.
1: Um, so it's it's kind of a hard argument to make because I don't, you know, I don't want to suggest that like these people don't have agency uh, or that somehow I'm excusing or apologizing for their crimes. But I think in a lot of and it doesn't have to be mass shootings. It's a lot of things that happen. Online and a benign example I ge- or a more benign example I give, is like fishing or like online affairs. It all comes from the same place. You you become so online that you disassociate from your body, and what you don't feel what you're doing in like a really fundamental sense. It's like almost like like your soul leaves your body, sort of, right? And so the normal checks and balances a, a regular person has just aren't there anymore. And this is like an argument. That also comes up with porn right it's so easy to consume high volumes of porn if you're if you're just looking at it on a screen and even something like forcing someone to sign up and having to think about it and leave that trance state and like put, write their name down um or like in a more extreme case physically go to a store buy you know buy a video buy you have to purchase each video like re you know re-embodies you to an extent so I, and I, so I think those kinds of things are happening with like more heinous crimes too or, or you know, things that are crimes at all. Um, you're so detached that you, that you just get lost. Um, and so it's less about being radicalized online and it's more about being so online that you no longer realize the gravity of what you're consuming or what you're doing. Your example
0: from the Adam Lanza case of how this happened, how someone became so online that he became desensitized to ordinary human life was, I think, one of the most interesting things I read on that case, actually. You know, you basically showed that, uh, you know, this wasn't just someone who was, you know, radicalized by violent video games or, you know, had no idea of the gravity of what he was doing, but he was really someone who just became lost in this online world of kind of fellow travelers, of this, you know, very fringe ideology antinatalism, I think in his case, and maybe in some other cases of mass shootings, uh, anti the belief that human life is, you know, uh, a morally bad thing—and
1: so human- his was even ex- more extreme. He got into something called ethelism, um, and he—and that was not extreme enough for him. So he made up something called uvalism, which is values backwards, right? So I—I I just want to be careful because I've, I've done some work about antinatalists and ethelists before, and I there's such a vilified group. But I just want to make sure that like they they they're oddballs, right? And I don't know I don't subscribe to their worldview. But they're not really they're not really doing anything wrong. These are people who are inspired by these ideas and kind of give them a life of their own.
0: Yeah, that's uh that's a good good clarification to make. <laughs> I don't want to slander <laughs> the antinatalist community. Um...
1: Yeah, and and anti so and so anti natalists just believe for different reasons, so I'm gonna be very reductive. If any anti they've reached out to me before, and they're like, you know, represent us correctly. Uh, (laughs) That propagating human life is unethical, and there's many different reasons to believe that. You know, it's it's a very, very big ecosystem, as many of these uh, digital communities are, right? And then ethelism is a step further that, like, life, just life, period, is unethical. And then there's pro-mortalism, which is, in a sense, pro-suicide. Um, so there's different shades of it. And Adam Lanza kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper down that rabbit hole. Um, until he thought that like the most that there was something evil about the idea of values at all. Right. And it was just the most extreme expression of uh, life, life being evil and life being a burden. And life is what makes makes man depressed.
0: I mean, I think that that kind of, you know, illustrates that, yeah, I even mean, it wasn't exactly wasn't so much a matter of being radicalized by the Internet. It was a matter of just getting lost in a sphere of ideas that had kind of tenuous links to the real world in many cases, and I guess losing a sense of, of human connection because of that. I think that's very enlightening. I guess uh, the final question is, how do you think uh, the Internet has changed politics more generally, you know, especially on the American right? You've written about how politics has become an extension of fandom, um, in part as a consequence of our immersion in the online sphere. So to me it seems like the Republican race of candidates like Trump or QAnon type politics, you know, Stop the Seal kind of exemplifies this because of a sense that one has to support a certain team, um and you know, follow whatever memes, you know, stop the seal, at the cost of actually engaging in uh you know, within you know, in reality, basically.
1: Yeah, um so it's I th- so I think w- with the politics and fandom thing, one, I think fandoms um, have informed politics, right? So that's one, that's one way it goes. And then the other way it goes is politics take the shape of fandoms, right? So they're similar, but different, um, different ideas. I think like, I-, I don't wanna say that like people sort of like mindlessly subscribing to one side or another is new, um, but there's like a more participatory function of it. Um, I also think politics have replaced like local gossip, for example, and to a huge extent, also celebrity culture. Um, So it's like filling so many different niches in someone's life. And so it's, you know, it's not enough. It's like the worst thing you could be is a centrist or both sides are, are on the fence, right? Because everyone needs to like sort you into one category or another. And people on the right do this and people on the left do this. I think it's more pronounced. Actually, I don't think it's more pronounced on the right. I think it's, I think the internet has influenced the left and then the internet has influenced the right. Um, It just feels more visible on the right because it's the right's kind of just catching up to it. You know, um, the the right is now like looking at the internet in a way that the left had already been doing. Um, So there's also an element of like, it's, it's literally trying to appeal to people through the internet. You know, people always talk about the miracle, or maybe not miracle, but, you know, how unique Trump was, right? And, like, the meme magic around Trump. But there was also, like, meme magic around Obama in a different way because there's a different subculture that kind of took off the mantle. But Obama was also really a product of um, internet popularity. Ron Paul was also. And there's, there's, there's many examples of... Of this, Um, but yeah, those are all the many different ways the internet has changed or informed politics.
0: Yeah, or even, and I do wonder if it's, I guess, a democratizing factor because we saw, I mean, you know, democratic politicians pushed much further to the left and embracing, you know, universal healthcare, Medicare for all, you know, much more commonly than they did before, or even, you know, a relatively non-interventionist foreign policy, Um, partly because of the Bernie Sanders campaign, which was very online-driven and mainstream Democrats um, having to uh, shift their positions in accordance with Bernie and AOC, at least somewhat, in order to uh, maintain votes. I mean, Biden's, you know, initial policy platform, although a lot of it didn't, didn't get implemented, uh, was the most left-wing platform, you know, in modern Democratic history, in no, th- in, in no, no shortage due to pressure from Bernie and, and the squad in terms of public appeal. Um, I think you see the same thing on the right, too, um, where the distinction between the online right and a mainstream right is uh, is is blurring very fast. I mean, uh, you know, yeah. people, someone like Charlie. An example. One example is like you know, you know, someone like Richard Hanania, who was initially a very fringe kind of online figure who made his, uh, you know, became very famous. He,
1: well, he's he's a, he's a weird example because I think he very self consciously. Um, moved to the dissident center, you know, yeah. what I think is so funny about him is he has this sort of um, he's like tainted by his dissident right roots or his Twitter trolling Yeah, but really the same class of commentator as like a like a Barry Who and I like both of them. You know, I'm not I'm not even I'm not criticizing either one of them, but it's it's, it's very funny because he has like an emergent ventures grant, you know, he's connected to Tyler Cowen. Um, he's he is a dissident center guy who came up through the alt-right.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. But even that's, that's an example of how, you know, online internet subculture, the dissident right, is now actually informing, you know, the policy, uh, you know, right-wing, you know, center-right, pol- or dissident center, as you called it, policy wonks. Uh, because he yeah. work on the civil rights law, which, I mean, you know, certainly likely influenced how much he denies it in his past and, you know, uh, dissident right online communities and talking points now stands a good chance of influencing the right-wing judiciary um even Chris Rufo and the anti-COT people they're very heavily online um
1: yeah so... and you know and again like I this isn't a criticism of Chris Rufo at all I think this is actually like inc- incredible that any anyone is yeah. you know anyone could do this he where would he be without without Twitter and that's why I you know I'm almost hesitant to say these kind of things because I think when ordinarily when someone says something like that, it's a criticism, but I think it's like great. Like it, like I would be, I, I've been writing about internet culture since, I don't know, like 2008. Right. But like people know who I am because of Twitter. Right. And because I like worked my way up and that any, that anyone could like reach the heights that Chris Rupo's reached is like, that's actually really amazing. And we should you know be appreciative of that. Even if you don't agree with Chris Rufo in particular, right? The mechanism is really, is really cool.
0: I think in the case of Chris Rufo and uh, Hanania, I think it really, um, you know, illustrates how incredible it is and how, how democratizing the internet has been uh, for politics, you know, more generally because uh, I think figures like, especially Chris Ruffo, the anti-CRT movement, you know, has been very effective, whether or not you agree with it or not, and I don't. Um, they've played a role in reorienting, reorienting Republican politicians towards issues like race, um, which a lot of the base, you know, are very deeply concerned with, you know, racial resentment is very high on the right and affirmative action, you know, is one of the least popular issues for the left, but Republican elites uh, historically shied away from those issues, especially on affirmative action. They didn't do much to um, limit affirmative action in the federal government for contractors and so on, in part because it didn't play very well elite media circles but the online right has kind of given them license to do that um and in this in this sense kind of go in line more with their voters
1: so um one of i think the one one thing that is is much you know as much as i'm appreciative of the democratizing nature and more people having an opportunity to speak and then there's also like more issues having the opportunity to be heard um there, what does also end up happening on sort of the darker side and more critical side is um, like intimidation tactics, and people become a fr- and people become more tribal. And certain figures will, you know, gain enough power, and it takes someone really brave to contradict them. And there's a lot of like, again, I'm like always very hesitant to use words like this, but like a lot of misinformation that gets spread around, um, be- just because there's like no fact checking that's going on and again like an example it's not quite as divisive um using the online writers as an example there's a lot of really bad nutrition advice and it's just become sort of a meme and it's almost not worth the contradiction right and it's somehow like left-wing coded to contradict certain obviously absurd um nutrition points or there's certain like um you know people who are just like completely repackaging debunked uh, you know, nutritionists or something, um, and you don't you don't want to go a- against that. But that happens on sort of this happens everywhere. That's just sort of an example that's top of mind. That it, and you end up with these memes that ha- that take on these lives of their own, and they become really hard to argue against.
0: Maybe a more you know, kind of mainstream examples, like you know Jordan Peterson, he had an all beef diet at one point or all meat diet. And, you know, I think a number of his followers adopted it. But moving on, that's just the final question. We're done with the really heavy stuff. But one thing I found fascinating, and I really wanted to address with you, because I I, I don't know anyone who's been to this country, actually. So on a lighter note, you know, you recently went to Saudi Arabia, and you found what seems to have been a very modern uh, Saudi Arabian urban society with a lot of the same internet subcultures, and this really shocked me, like TikTok and anime culture. And so in what ways does Saudi Arabia, which is an example of a very conservative, you know, non-Western country, in what ways does it seem to be modernizing, and how is the internet tied to that?
1: So, media is opening up, just in general, like, they have access to Netflix, and there's also been certain reforms, so fashion has also, um, become considerably more liberal in cities, from what I observed. Um, I, I, I was only there, uh, for a little bit and I was mostly in Riyadh um so I can only speak to very small pockets of it um but I I think that people just have a, a little bit more um I guess like maybe privacy is the right word um like the opportunity to share things with one another on Snapchat I think is very significant and just having that level of like not feeling surveilled, even if they might not have been that granularly surveilled ever, right? Just having, just the feeling that they're they're doing something in private. Um, And then also there's a lot of people, like I I learned there's a lot of people in government who like, who openly really like anime. Um, I don't know how anime is changing the culture. I wish I knew more about, uh, you know, the otaku culture of uh, Saudi Arabia. but they seem to really like uh, Japanese animation, and they're trying to like emulate it themselves, which I thought was really, uh, really interesting. Um, I don't want to overstate or, or, you know, i like I'd understate the, the modernization that's going on, though. It just it seems that it's um, it's a little bit there's a there's a little bit more openness than there might have been, um, you know, in previous in previous years, and that's maybe most visible with fashion.
0: Yeah, I remember I read an article a while back, and one of the reasons I asked this question, because I became really interested in Saudi Arabia, Tyler Cowen posted an article, think about someone who traveled to, like, um, the Gambia, um, about traveling in the Gambia, and then I went to this guy's blog, and he wrote also he traveled to a bunch of places, and one of the places he traveled to was Saudi Arabia. So I read this very, very long article, you know, written a couple of years, a year or two ago, about traveling to Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia's modernization. Now, the modernization is very uneven. Because on the one hand, you have kind of a, you know, almost a real neophyte devotion to kind of, uh, you know, futurism, you know, sort of, Uh, because Saudi Arabia has been such an old world society. Like, you know, one example is, you know, if you look at the plans for this this planned city that they're building in Saudi Arabia, it looks like, you know, uh, how 2015 is depicted in Back to the Future. There are flying cars and... You know, everything is digitalized. Well, Saudis are obviously in love with kind of the cyberpunk aspect of the Internet in ways that, in very really quirky ways. But also, um, then there are a lot of aspects of Saudi Arabia that apparently are not modern at all. Like, for instance, uh, you know, much of, much of Saudi society, you know, historically, you know, were either, you know, nom- lived nomadically in the desert or in more recent years didn't have to work very much because of the oil wealth. Um, and so services are very bad because there isn't that same culture of, you know, eight hour, you know, uh, forty hours a week labor that we have here. As so I read a, a nightmare story about a guy who was still stranded for eight hours uh, on the road, uh, his car broke down, and no one at the Saudi uh, rental car dealership would pick up or anything, even though it was open. Um, but it's very, it's was very interesting in Saudi Arabia how there is again kind of a, you know, almost like. Um, really ex- extreme fascination with uh, you know the kind of futurism
1: that you know
0: adopting you know internet culture could bring but there's also a very uh, very very old world sensibility
1: I don't think it's internet culture as much as it is uh technology more generally um, and I you know I don't know for sure because i I really have spent most time in um, in just a few cities but it's it seems like the the life is very different um, in cities versus in more rural or even suburban areas. Right. Like the, you know, like what you described with the rental cars, right. To me, that doesn't sound very much, that's not that different than Italy. Right. Or maybe certain areas of the American South, that just have a much slower pace of life and a different relationship with work and with labor. I will say though, like Riyadh, for example, is very cosmopolitan. It's very modern. It's very clean, um, and it's it's very diverse too, which is re- I think really interesting and maybe not something people expect. Um, I was talking to a gentleman at a restaurant, and he you know he was, he was saying like, you know, I might not be able to pick up on it because I'm not an Arabic speaker, but people are speaking many different dialects of Arabic. in, in one restaurant, there's people from you know Syria like there's Jordan you know just all over the region and it's so, and like Riyadh for example is like the New York of the Middle East in a lot of ways um, just in terms of like diversity per capita um, so I think maybe part of it is just like there's these centers of gravity in the cities and maybe the and I, I don't know for sure but maybe the ways they live in more rural areas are just very different and they just don't have the resources that other parts of the country have That's amazing,
0: (laughs) and I wouldn't have expected that, and I hope to visit Saudi Arabia maybe one day. Um, But anyway, I think we'll end it there. That was just a fascinating discussion on, you know, a number of different topics, like the internet culture, dating in the digital age, and now travel. Um, And I hope to read, you know, more of what you write in the coming months.
1: Thank you. All right, thanks for having me.
0: Thanks very much. That was Catherine D., a.k.a. Default Friend, on MIR Meets.